This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Gil Troy. Gil is an American historian and a historian of America living in Canada and teaching at McGill. He is the author of books about the history of Zionist ideas, the Clintons, Daniel Patrick's Moynihan's fight against hatred at the United Nations, and the virtues of moderation in politics and governance. Gil, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. I'm honored to be with you. You have a, a great cast of characters, and uh, you're, you're, you're going low by turning to me, but I'm honored. Well, I believe you're the first uh, brother to be on The Rabbi's Husband, because your brother, Tevi, was on uh, a couple weeks ago. So Yes, and he sends warm regards. Oh, good. Yes, to him as well, please. So your chosen passage is a magnificent passage. It's uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, and uh, so uh, please tell us what happens in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and why it's significant to you. So this is the moment, to be cheesy, when Abram gets the ham and ape and becomes Abraham, that holy H. Um, in Hebrew, it would be the holy hey. And it's, it's the moment of great revelation. And for me, it's the moment when the Jewish people are born. And the power of the passage comes from the fact that the Lord says to Abram, Lech lecha, leave your house, your father's house, your homeland, and I will make of you, it should be a great religion. Because we in America and Canada and, and outside of Israel often think of Judaism only as a religion. But he says, no, I will make of you a great nation. And in that, we have an essential insight about the power of Judaism, which is that Judaism, I like to tell my students, is an Oreo cookie. Just like the Oreo cookie has the cookie part and the cream part, and only together does it become the Oreo cookie, and it's the most popular cookie in the world. I looked it up on the internet, and of course, everything on the internet we know is true. And so the, the Jewish people are both a nation and a religion. And different people have tried to take it apart. You have ultra-Orthodox people and highly intensified reform people who try to say, oh, no, no, there's no national dimension to it. You've had some so-called secular Israelis who said, oh, no, no, there's no national dimension. There's just a national dimension. There's no religion dimension. But let's do a test. Anybody ever sit at a Passover Seder? Is it a religious moment or is it a moment of national liberation? The answer is yes, both, the Oreo cookie. Yes, and, and what you're saying is so profound. Yes, and inexorably so. It's inseparable. It's, it's inseparable. The Kotel, the Western Wall, Jerusalem, is it a symbol of spiritual, religious programming? Is it our software, if you will? Or is it our hardware, our nationhood, our statehood? The answer is yes, the Oreo cookie. And once you start seeing Judaism through that lens, and it's thanks to Abram becoming Abraham, once you see at that moment the power of that, all of a sudden you can understand these things about Judaism, which are so darn confusing, where there are so many people who may not believe in God, but won't call themselves ex-Jews. They call themselves Jews why you can be a cultural Jew or a religious Jew, why you can have that whole gamut, why you also can have, and here I'm going to put out my Zionist hat, a Jewish state that isn't a theocracy because there are these cultural, national, peoplehood dimensions to it. And so in that moment, the Jewish people are born, but it's also a moment of tremendous revelation because it's God 
speaking to Abram and making him Abraham with that holy hey. I know I'm purposely repeating myself to, because you see the, the power of it. And for me, this is very significant also because today I'm launching this book with Natan Sharansky called Never Alone. The other dimension of peoplehood is that when you're a part of this people, you not only get the values, you not only get the ideals, but you're a part of this extraordinary network. And as he learned and as he knew, as he taught the KGB for the nine years that he was in the Gulag, you can really be isolated, but you're never alone. And as we've learned during this period of COVID, you can be cut off. Some of our parents and grandparents have not been able to see and hug their grandchildren for weeks on end, but you know you're a part of this people. You're never alone. And so in that passage, we have Zionism, we have Jewish religiosity, we have Jewish peoplehood. Now, one of the other guests on the rabbi's husband, um, a Christian pastor, he talked about the law of first mention, which I found interesting and researched it afterwards, which is that we can understand uh, the significance of a word or phrase or an idea by how it's mentioned first or by where it's mentioned first. Huh. And in this passage, the first thing that's mentioned is nation. And I will make of you a great nation. And other things come subsequently. Is this or is it not an application of the law of first mention where is the primary is the most important thing Jewish nationhood, or are they just equal and so immeasurably intertwined that it can't be said to be more important? So I, I would apply the law by saying that this shows the centrality of nation, and it also shows the radical nature of that moment, of that revelation, because I'm not a great biblical uh, historical scholar, but I would say most moments of revelation prior to that are just religious moments. And the power of Judaism is this link between hardware and software. And so I would say it doesn't necessarily get to primacy, but it gets to novelty. And, and this is one of the things that people have never fully understood about Judaism. Again, especially in the North American Jewish community, people say, oh, what's my religion? Judaism, right? But they may not wear a kippot, they may not keep kosher, they may not be very religious, especially in the United States of America, because it's, it, it's part of their nationhood, their ethnicity. In Israel, You'll have all kinds of people who will say, well, I'm not religious, but they'll actually believe in God. They'll sit the seven days of, of Shiva, the seven days of mourning. They'll uh, have Friday night dinner and go, hmm, you look pretty religious to me. And serving in the army. Right. And, th and that's an act of religious observance. So, I, you know, I, I see the same thing when my Israeli friends will say, I'm not religious or so-and-so is not religious. My answer is, how do you know? All you're telling me is that he doesn't look like he's richly observant because he's not wearing a black coat and a kippah or a big hat. But if he's building Jewish institutions, if he's serving the Jewish people, he might be as religious as the most Haredi looking guy in Barak. Absolutely. And there are so many laws in the Torah which talk about that. I, they, they say to me, you know, I hey, I'm the secular. And I go, great. I hear there's a hot new restaurant that just opened up back when we used to could go to restaurants. I hear there's a hot new restaurant that opened up in Tel Aviv, but I can only get reservations at seven o'clock on a Friday night. Will you join me? And they go, I can't join you. I go, why not? They go, my mother will kill me. I go, why? What do you have to see your mother then? She goes, well, I have to be there for dinner. I go, what kind of dinner? They call it Shabbat dinner, Sabbath dinner. I go, you're the worst secular people in the world. You don't know how to be secular, right? You speak Hebrew, you live by the Jewish calendar, you serve in the Jewish army, and why? It's the Oreo cookie. And in this world today, we spend so much time trying to smash the cookie, trying to decide, are you religious or national? Are you liberal or this? Why not accept the mess? The great American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald said the mark of true intelligence is the ability to hold two conflicting thoughts in your head. This passage invites us into that wonderful muddled middle. I'm juggling. There's a religious dimension to me. There's a national dimension to me. There's a spiritual dimension to me. There's a more material dimension to me. 
One doesn't have to eliminate the other. One doesn't have to wipe out the other. I go with the flow. And I, yeah, sometimes I'm a little bit confused, but that confusion can be delicious and it doesn't necessarily have to be exhausting. There, there is no Hebrew word for face in the singular. It's only panim, which is plural, because none of us have only one face, so we don't need a word for it. <laughs> so am, am I, uh, so it goes, that seemingly goes to exactly what you're saying. You, you, to be a Jew means you have a national identity, you have a religious identity, you have a spiritual identity, you have a city identity. You got it all. You don't have only one. Right. The package is beautiful. And, and there's also no traditional Hebrew word for religious. If we went back in time to our great, 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 great grandparents and said, are you dati, which is the Hebrew word for religious, they'd go, are my what? Do I have a dot on my eye? Dati is a word taken from Persian. Because in the age of the 1700s and 1800s, when there was this smash of this collision between tradition and modernity. And all of a sudden, this notion of being religious is being invented. They have to go and shop around and find a word dati to explain those people who try to suck, it, suck out, vacuum out the nation from the Oreo cookie. But it's, it's in some ways an artifice. And again, the more we accept the muddle, the other thing we'll get from the passage, and here we can uh, talk about Rashi, the great medieval French scholar's interpretation of the passage. He says, you know, there's not supposed to be any repetition in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, because every word is holy. But why would he say, go forth, go, lechlecha, go outside your land, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you? Why that repetition three times? And we also see in that passage the power of land, right? Land, people, religion, the holy trinity, if you will, of Judaism. He says, because God understands, and the Jewish people at that moment understand how difficult a move it is to uproot yourself. And so the repetition acknowledges, he says, even in my day, in the Middle Ages, it's really hard to travel. Of course, now we know how much harder it is for us to travel, right? It used to be very easy, but traveling itself is, is difficult. And so there's delicious difficulties and there are traumatic difficulties. This is the delicious difficulty. And the repetition says, I know you're making a big step, Abram. You're putting that ham in Abraham. You're getting that holy hay. You're also leaving the world that you know this whole new world. And that takes a real bravery. It takes a real jump. And we know all that you're giving up, but implicitly by listing all that you're giving up and still doing it, you know all that you're going to get. It starts with the land, it goes to the people, and it goes to faith. And the first thing that happens is he says, go. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm not asking you to give anything up until you have a positive notion of where you're going to. First go, then leave. In other words, if God said, First, leave, you might say, like, I'm not, you might not even let him finish a sentence. Like, leave my land, leave my birthplace, you know, forget it. No, no, no. You're going to go to a special place. And in order to go to that special place, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You're going to have to leave your land, your relatives, and your father's house. But you're going to go to a special place. And that's what comes first. It's, it's this positive, idealistic notion. And once that's set, people can do anything to achieve it. And in our theme this morning of, of duality, it's, it's lech lecha, go goest, or walk walkest right? There's a built into the Hebrew phrase is a kind of double nature, right? And it's saying, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, the hardest step in the jog every morning is that first step. The hardest prayer is that first prayer. Going, oh my goodness, why am I doing this again? Go goest, walk walkest, lech lecha, from your place, from also your, your failures, your frustrations, your losses, and go to something new. And that's excitement. That's the possibility of peoplehood, because you're never alone, of religion, because you're walking with God, 
and of the land, which you can make into something new, renewed, and renewing of yourself and your soul. That's right. And, 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 and what it's teaching us is that once you realize that you can achieve something great for God and derivatively for yourself, you can do anything. You can do the hardest thing in the world, which is leaving everything behind. If you have a place to go, you can leave everything behind and, and accomplish great things. But first, you need that idealistic notion. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to myself, for myself, for God. Unclear, but you can achieve anything once you have that positive notion first. And of course, to quote Cheers, it's a place where everybody knows your name. It's a place where where you're a part. And and notice also the power of that passage, especially these days when we're told, oh, you have to choose between being an individualist or being someone who's collective. No, I will, I will bless you, right? And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. But first, I will make you a great nation. That through your nationalism, through your commitment to the community, through your thinking of others, you build yourself up. It's not me or them. It's us together. Building myself up by caring about others. Is the you in 12-2 in the singular or the uh, plural? And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. It's starting as, as you individually. It's, it's, I will make you. And then it's, so I go from the individual and then echoing out to the collective. And that's, that's, again, a very important message today when everybody's so busy making these false choices. No, let's flow. Let's figure out how do I be a good, good nationalist and a good universalist? How do I make sure that I, I'm proud of my particularism, I'm proud of my people, I'm proud of my family, I'm proud of myself, but I also think about others. It, and, and, and it's actually like a, a, a muscle. One builds the other. It's not, it's not in contradiction. Yeah, it's not a contradiction at all. And that actually um, reminds me of a study which showed that the people most likely to give generously to secular charities are religious people. So the better you are at being what we might call a particularist means you will be a better universalist. My late mother used to say, if you're so open-minded, your brains fall out. Right. Um, if you don't have some rootedness, some anchors, and again, we go to the key part of the passage, some sense of land, some sense of people, some sense of belonging, some sense of identity, it's all just very flowing. How do you pass on the torch? How do you pass on lessons? It has to be through individuals. It has to be through stories. It has to be through loyalties. And that's the best way to be, indeed, as you point out, a universalist, the best way to give is by first connecting. We're so busy thinking, oh, if, I'm, if I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the other, then I'm really a good person. If you're thinking so busy thinking about the other, you're going to bend over and fall over. You need to first have a strong spine. I call this Pilates Judaism. Build yourself, build the, build the core. And once you have a strong core, then you're comfortable helping others. And by helping others, you, of course, help yourself. Rabbi Sachs said that this passage offers the pathway to freedom. For the past couple hundred years, intellectuals have said that there are deterministic factors that make the exercise of freedom impossible. Marx said there's economic determinism. Spinoza said that there is effectively genetic determinism. And Freud said that there is effectively childhood trauma determinism. God, here in Lechlecha, says nonsense. You can leave your land, you can leave your relatives, and you can leave your father's house, and you can be free. Once we have that positive notion, none of these determinisms are relevant because you have free choice. And, and that's our power. But then, of course, you have the power to rebuild and the power to root and the power to the anchor because ultimately humans want to be rooted in something. So I may cut off from somewhere, but I have to be going somewhere. Lech lecha, go goest, walk walkest. It's, it's always, and, and one of the things I think that I learned from my late grandfather is that 
prior to the biblical revolution, prior to the Abrahamic revolution, history was seen to be not forward-looking. It was just every moment was every moment, every day was every day. And what the Bible brings us to is a sense of forward-looking. It brings us a sense of, of progress in history, that we're constantly building, we're constantly going somewhere. We have a sense of mission. Abraham has a sense of mission. Moses has a sense of mission. The prophetess Devorah has a sense of mission. And we, in the modern world, in the Zionist world, have a sense of mission. And, and, if you, and it's like a, the other analogy would be a bird, right? Uh, that if, if, if a bird isn't flapping its wing and soaring, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a hard crash. And so we need a nationalism that isn't about building walls, but it's about reaching high altitude, about thinking great thoughts, about how, how to help other people and how to use our right wing and our left wing our religion and our nation to make ourselves better and to make the world a better place. Yeah. And, and, and with that conviction, um, we can endure any sacrifice and, and, and achieve what God wants with us. Yep. And, and this is the story, you know, of, of, of people like Nelson Mandela, but also of my co-author Natan Sharansky. Natan Sharansky says that in the Soviet Union, the Marxist communist world strips you of your identity. And indeed, it's not just economic determinism, but that you account, you don't count for anything. And he says, I had no identity and thus no freedom. And once I learned who I was, once I embraced my identity, lech lecha, then I could get my freedom. Nelson Mandela says the same thing. Until I rooted myself in my land, back to the, these passages, I couldn't fight for my people. I couldn't fight for my freedom. And so we see the importance of land, where everybody knows your name, belonging, peoplehood, never alone, and also having some sense of mission. Some may call it religion. Some may call it God. Some may call it purpose. But, uh, and this, of course... You know, we talk about great heroes like Sharansky and Mandela. We could also talk about it in terms of modern academic theories, where they talk about what do human beings need. They need autonomy, a sense of self. They need community, commitment to, other, to others. But they also need some sense of sanctity, divinity, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, holiness, but it means something bigger than yourself. Jumping ahead. Lech lecha. Walk walkest. Go goest. Go somewhere. Otherwise, it's nihilist. Otherwise, we're stuck. It's sterile. And I'm seeing too much of that, I'm sorry to say, in the modern world. Right. No, there needs to be a notion of, of go, where to go, and why to go. So um, tell us about, about the book that just got released today with Natan Cheransky. The book is called Never Alone, Prison Politics and My People. Natan has this line that he says, I served nine years in the Gulag, nine years in Israeli politics, nine years in the Jewish agency. I don't know where I suffered most. The original working title of the book was 999, but you can't have a title that's an inside joke. That's right. And I was telling a friend of mine about the book and he said, well, tell me, you know, what's the core of the book? And I said, well, Sharansky says that he's in the gulag for nine years, this insane Soviet prison system. And they keep on telling him, you're forgotten. You're abandoned. You don't count for anything. He said, but I knew I was never alone. And he goes, that's it. For 75 years, the Jewish people have been focused on never again. And of course, we have to remember the, the victims of the Holocaust and make sure that such oppressions and degradations never happen to anyone ever again. But we also have to remember something positive. And you're part of not just never again, but never alone. And so we basically use this extraordinary story, this extraordinary story of heroism, of leaving the Soviet Union, of fighting both for identity and for freedom, because he was also a dissident. He wasn't just a refusenik. He's fighting for the two together, coming to Israel. And we use that as a story to invite people to understand, first of all, the power of the Jewish experience, but also the power of the modern liberal nationalist experience, that we can bring ideas together and not just have these false choices, that we can stand for ourselves, stand up for ourselves, but also we can 
help others. And it's not a false choice. So in many ways, this passage is a perfect passage to describe the essence and message of the book. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a countercultural message today because everybody's so busy dividing. We want to unite. We want to juggle. We want the mess. We want the mix. Right. Busy dividing and, and, and often too much focusing on one particular identity rather than the multiple identities that we all have. The panim, which is the only thing we have, is panim. We don't have singular. We only have panim in plural. And, 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 and your Oreo cookie analogy is so interesting. Or these identities, Jewish or otherwise, are intertwined, and we should embrace the complexities that they offer. And by having that pride, I don't negate others, right? That in fact, it's a kind of, we could call it it's a jujitsu, J-E-W, exactly. That by uh, my, my sensitivity to others comes from my pride in myself. It's your Jewish, it's our Jewish obligation. Right, and wanting, and wanting people to, to respect my autonomy, my desires, my Zionist needs to have a Jewish state, to, have a, to be proud of my Jewish people, to express my Jewish religion, makes me more sensitive to others. It doesn't lead me to negate others. It leads me to, again, Pilates, build myself up, and by doing that, be sensitive and strong to help others. Absolutely. So, uh, Gil, thank you for such an interesting conversation about this uh, foundational verse of the Jewish people. And the concluding question always goes from one sacred text, that of the, the uh, Torah, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says on the first page, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> So in all your years of being a historian, of covering so many different topics, so many different issues, meeting so many different people and in, engaging in so many different people, both current and historical, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Wow. Um, it's funny. I, I would say that, uh, that we have, humanity has a remarkable resilience. I've seen it in someone like Stransky. I've seen it in that remarkable book by Viktor Frankl, Man in Search of Meaning. Best book of the 20th century. I've seen it in the eyes of Daniel Pearl, right? I, I, the, the eyes of Daniel Pearl, who, uh, I'm sorry, of Judea Pearl, who lost his son, Daniel Pearl, and still has a twinkle. I saw it in my father-in-law's eyes, who was a, a, a Holocaust survivor. I think human beings are way more resilient than we give them credit for. And that we, and, and, and I, I also think that we're way more good than, than we're often given credit for. I've seen the, the human capacity for evil, but I've also seen how much by working together, by thinking about others, by building together, we can make miracles. The state of Israel is a miracle. The United States of America, even with all its challenges today, is a miracle. You know, from space travel to air travel to that crazy thing called an elevator to the Oreo cookie. There are so many miracles in our lives that we take for granted. And so um, ultimately, I, I, I tend to be more the optimist than some of my uh, European friends and, and believe that we, we humans have a remarkable capacity to endure and I think this is an important message right now during this ongoing and seemingly never-ending crisis. And through that endurance, not just survive, but thrive and do good. Well, Gil, uh, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation. Uh, really uh, just bringing out so much meaning and so much uh, relevance to our contemporary lives from this uh, magnificent passage that you chose, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Really, Genesis 12, 1, 1 through 2. Well, thank you for all the, uh, all the great work you're doing. And I'm really hungry. I got to go eat some Oreo cookies now. So, okay, uh, terrific. Well, thank you. 